One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Always great to have you with me on the journey through time and space. Uh, before we get started, as always, big thanks to all the people who give their support to the podcast series by signing up to my Patreon site. It's that financial support that makes it all possible. So if you're already a member, a thousand thank yous. If you'd like to become a member, go to patreon.com, look for me by name and follow the instructions. Sign up. You have to part with a bit of cash. Join for the month or join for the year and it's cheaper by the dozen, I can tell you that. And by so doing, you get access to the weekly question and answer, the vodcast, the podcasts, all of it. Um, and you're you're in the you're in the company then of like-minded people. We are a we are an ever-growing family of people interested in and questioning of history. So come along and join up. That would be the end of the advert. Time to get aboard the time machine as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Hatred and hostility are on the rise, battle lines are drawn, and the Crusaders sweep into a maelstrom of bloody conflict. At their head are the kings of Europe. Standing in their way, resolute, resilient and determined, is Saladin, Sultan of Egypt and Syria. Amidst a war marked by butchery, slaughter and inexcusable war crimes on both sides, Saladin's reputation for chivalry grows, and Islam was here to stay. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we stood in awe beside the extraordinary mountains of stone, as you call them, that humans have built throughout history. Which moment in the story of the world are we heading to now? Morning Paul. Well, after reaching for the skies last week, uh, we're back down to Earth now with a bump in this episode. It's full of knights in shining armour, riding into battle. It's about ambition and deceit, vengeance, terrible violence and religious hatred. It's got the lot. In the midst of it all are tales of chivalry and a character who became an icon of Islam. It's the late 1100s and we're heading towards Jerusalem. We're in the time of the the Crusades, I suppose really the Third Crusade, you would say, but what we're particularly interested in is the character of Saladin, who is a, by now, or, or and has been for a long time, he's a, he's a sort of a romantic figure, a chivalric hero, an icon of chivalry, you would say, which is quite bizarre, or it, it was at the time when it began to happen, because, of course, Saladin was a Muslim warlord who led the enemy during the the third crusade uh, against the christian forces and in that context that he was established in the aftermath 
not right away, but in, in the years following, he was established as this hero, a gentleman, only doing good, courteous in victory and in defeat. All of that kind of behaviour was attributed to him. Uh, and yet in that, in that context of having been the, the leader of the enemy during the Crusades, it's quite bizarre. And that word chivalry, in, in the popular imagination, it's, it's to do with knights and... Yeah, it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole standard of behaviour that was attributed to or expected of that knightly class. I, I suppose everyone thinks about it in terms of, say, uh, King Arthur and the Round Table and Camelot and the knights that went off to pursue the, the Holy Grail and, and giving of themselves selflessly... That, that idea of self-sacrifice and it, it comes with that idea of you know chivalric love you know where the knights would they would fixate upon a woman out of reach often actually a married woman which was almost the point they would direct this courtly chaste love at this woman who they would never touch they would never lay a hand on but but she would become this womanly ideal for them, and they would you know they would send letters and and, and whatever love from afar, uh, and that's all bound up with it as well. And that big envelope of gentlemanly characteristics was somehow Saladin was swept up into it. It's got a long backstory, obviously. Um, we have already dealt with the Battle of Manzikert in ten seventy one, which saw for the first time a Byzantine army defeated by uh, an army of Seljuk Turks. So it, it was the first time that East had defeated West. And so it was the first time that Islam had defeated Christianity on the battlefield. It was one of those moments, which was why we've already addressed it in the love letter to the world, but it was a shift. In that moment, I suppose you would say, it, it, it didn't necessarily change world geopolitics but it was the, it was the start of something it was a hang on if that's possible if that can even happen then a whole load of other stuff must be possible it was one of those moments so after Manzikert in 1071 something had happened to the balance all the consequences had not yet played out but suddenly there was a new sheriff in town the Seljuk Turks uh, they were you know part of that movement of people We've talked again and again and again about people are always in movement. There was always flux and uh, a confusion of people moving. And as as one group moved a thousand miles over there, like dominoes, it, it had it had effects all the way down the line. If that group began to move out of the east and into the west, then they bumped into the next group, and they they either fought back or they absorbed the incomers or they moved on their own account in another direction. So you've got the constant stirring soup of people going on. And, you know, the, the Seljuk Turks were, well, they were effectively, in this context, what matters is that they were quite, they were late converts to Islam. It's like Muhammad is 7th century and the caliphates had been on the rise, the Umayyads and the Abbasids and, and so on, in the centuries thereafter. But the, the Seljuk Turkish people had come to it quite late. And in that way of late converts, they were particularly zealous you know they were, you know the, the the latest people to catch on to the fashion are quite often the, the most passionate, at least for a while, and this was certainly the case with the, with these Turks. So they were they were particularly Muslim, if you like. They were particularly uh, d determined that Islam was the way and the only way. 
And one of the ways in which that state of mind in the East manifests itself was that up until that point, the route out of the West into the Holy Land, basically trying to get to Jerusalem and the places where Jesus had walked and the tomb and the, and the birthplace and all of the rest of it, it had been relatively straightforward. If you could make the journey dangerous and time-consuming, but the way was open into the East, into the Holy Land. The, the Seljuk Turks put the kibosh on that. They made it a bit more awkward because they decided that the Holy Land belonged to the Prophet and to, and to Allah and Islam. And, and the, so there were, there were now obstacles in the way of, of would-be pilgrims trying to get to the holy places. And not surprisingly, that put Christian backs up. So Manzikert's 1071. 1095, you get the First Crusade. This was the Christian West deciding, right, we're going to sort this out once and for all. We're going back into the Holy Land and we're going to sort these, these Muslim infidels out. So that was the atmosphere behind the First Crusade and it lasted from 1095 to 1099. And like all of the Crusades, it ended in ugly bloodiness. Uh, the sacking of Jerusalem. Eventually, the soldiers of the cross got into the city of Jerusalem and it was butchery. A lot of people were put to the sword, as the expression goes. In the aftermath of that First Crusade, the Crusader states were established in the Holy Land. That was these uh, like separate, uh, independent, quasi-independent entities. So you've got the Principality of Antioch, you've got the County of Edessa, uh, you've got the County of Tripoli and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, all governed by their own top people uh, and... They're, they're basically just uh, bridgeheads for Christianity in the Holy Land. They're there to defend the Christian sense of the Holy Land. Things quieten down, things go the way of the, the way that the, the, the Christian settlers or invaders, it goes their way for a lifetime. And then in 1147, there's a second crusade because the balance of power has shifted again and Islam is on the rise again. So the Crusaders come for a second time, and this time it ends in defeat. Defeat for the soldiers of the cross outside the city of Damascus. In a battle outside the gates of Damascus, they're crushed. And after the Second Crusade, although Jerusalem remained um, the capital of a Christian kingdom that was still intact, no one doubted that the tide of Islam was was rising. I mean, it's, it's obvious in a way... It, the Crusaders are always at the end of the supply line. You know, they're coming out of the Western European countries. And by the time they're in the Holy Land, they're a long way from home. And they're in territory that is the land of Islam. They're already there. They're, they're on home turf. And so maintaining anything at that kind of distance, the odds are always against you. The Second Crusade... It, it, runs its course from 1147 to 1150, ends in defeat outside Damascus. The Kingdom of Jerusalem maintains. Now, the, the trouble doesn't stop. The trouble does not stop. And on the 4th of July, 1187, there's a battle uh, at Hattin, and a Muslim army led by Salah ad-Sin, that's Saladin, who is the Sultan of Egypt, the Muslim Sultan of Egypt, he is victorious. He leads a Muslim army against a Christian force. He enters Jerusalem. He's on the move. Saladin 
as he comes to be known to the West, is on the move. He enters Jerusalem as conqueror in the aftermath of Hatton. Well, three months after the Battle of Hatton, on the 2nd of October, he's in Jerusalem. He enters as conqueror. And it, it brings to an end at that point nearly 90 years, best part of a century of Christian dominance of Jerusalem. Now, the fact that Saladin and his Muslim force has got into Jerusalem triggers the Third Crusade. Okay, so... First one, 1095 to 1099. Second one, 1147 to 1150. Now there's a third crusade triggered by events at at Hatton and then the the takeover of Jerusalem. And three kings come out of the west. It's a bit like a reverse of the, the, the three wise men out of the east that arrive at the birth of the baby Jesus. There's three kings come out of Europe, supposedly in alliance. They are Philip II of France, King of France, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, who at the same time as being the Holy Roman Emperor is also the King of Germany, if you like, uh, and Richard I, Richard the Lionheart of England. So they all get coaxed into it. Pope Gregory VII calls for a third crusade and, and off these men go. So by the June of 1191, Philip of France and Richard of England are together at the siege of the port of Acre. A very significant point everyone needs this access because it means by you know you can land supplies you can land men so there's they're besieging the city of acre by that point frederick barbarossa the holy roman emperor he's dead he died crossing the salaf river in turkey he crossed it in full armor apparently on horseback came off his horse and drowned so he's already out of the picture dead and gone actually frederick barbarossa he's interesting he becomes a sort of um he's a bit of a king arthur Character. He's one of those that people couldn't believe he was gone. And a similar Arthurian-type myth grew up about Frederick Barbarossa that he would come back. You know, that he was sleeping somewhere. He wasn't dead, but he was that he would return to his people. Anyway, so the Holy Roman Emperor's gone. So of the three kings, there's only two left. Having said that, relations between Philip and Richard had gone south. They'd soured. Those two men were not getting on and either or was liable to leave at any given moment and take his army with him. The siege of Acre lasted a dreadful two years. Just misery for all concerned. Misery and and disease and privations both inside and outside of the city. Richard, King Richard fell ill, possibly, probably with malaria, given the conditions and given the location. And here's where it it starts, okay? This is is where the the mythologising starts. The myth had it that word of Richard's illness reached Saladin and such was his chivalry. He could not contemplate the suffering of a fellow monarch and so, according to the story, he sends his own physicians to go and treat him. Right? He sends his own men across the enemy lines. At that point, it's well worth pointing out that Islamic medicine was way in advance of anything that the Western armies had their approach, their science, their their learned men had drawing upon Greek understanding from, you know, thousands of years before, they had you know, they had acquired that and their their way of treating the sick was far superior to ours at that time in the twelfth century. Along with the physicians, he even manages to send, according to the story, a box of snow so that he could, you know, soothe his fevered brow. Now to to be able to obtain far less transport a box of snow in the Holy Land in high summer. I mean, if that happened, that's quite the feat. 
where was that obtained and how was it insulated and all of the rest of it? But anyway, apparently the story goes that he sent Snow and his and his doctors. In fact, now the, when we talk about the mythologising and the, the rewriting of Saladin as a chivalric hero, no less a figure than Sir Walter Scott had a hand in it. He wrote a novel called The Talisman, in which he describes Saladin not just sending his doctors, but actually going to tend to Richard himself in disguise. He turns up at the at Richard's encampment and, and introduces himself as Adonbeck El Hakim. Uh, and he's challenged. Hang on, hang on a sec. Wait till I read you a bit. He's challenged, obviously, uh, at the gates by the by the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, right? Who who is protecting? Is a bodyguard for Richard? Infidel, hast thou the courage to practice thine art upon the person of an anointed sovereign of the Christian host? He asks in Walter Scott's language, obviously. Uh, and undaunted, El Hakim replies, "The Son of Allah." shines on the Nazarene as well as on the true believer. The Nazarene is Jesus. The Son of Allah shines on, on the Nazarene as well as on the true believer, and his servant dare make no distinction betwixt them when called on to exercise the art of healing. So, they let him in, and un, unbeknownst to Richard, according to the talisman, he's treated and brought back to health by no lesser figure than Saladin, who's so determined to, you know, to perform his chivalric uh, obligations. And it's definitely one of those moments that if, if that didn't happen, then it should have. It's quite bizarre. You know, Richard was swept up into it as well. After the time of the Crusades, they were both held up as these heroes of chivalry. And it's quite amazing. I mean, for example, after the Siege of Acre, uh, Richard ordered the slaughter of 2,700 people from within the city. But had them, you know, butchered all at the same time. And this act, this war crime, was in itself revenge for a slaughter that was carried out by Saladin in the aftermath of the Battle of Hatton, which predated the, the conquest of Jerusalem. In the aftermath of Hatton, uh, Saladin's forces had taken 200 knights prisoner. Now, militarily, it made sense to neutralise that threat, that potential threat, okay, but Nonetheless, they were they were butchered. Saladin ordered their execution, and he he had it performed by Sufis, holy men, Muslim holy men, were ordered to carry out the beheadings one by one of the two hundred knights, and they weren't expert in any way with the weapons, and so it, it turned into a horrifying botched job. They were swinging the axe three, four, five, six times to to cut off the the individual heads. It was a horror show. So. So there you go, Saladin slaughters the 200 knights. In revenge for that, amongst other things, Richard orders the, the slaughter of 2,700 men, women and children. And yet somehow, in the aftermath of all of that, both of these men are held up as heroes. They were successful warriors, but you know whether they were chivalric heroes is, a, is an entirely different matter. And so it raises the question, why? It was a widespread phenomenon. Dante, he imagined, in his writing, he imagined that uh, Saladin was installed in the outer reaches of hell. Okay, when everyone dies, you know, everyone makes their progress through hell. And he had Saladin in, the, in limbo, which is like the softer part of the outskirts, the, the leafy suburbs of hell. Um, and limbo was set aside for people who had, through no fault of their own, missed out on the teaching of the gospel. Like 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 unbaptized infants, 
So those who had died without having had the benefit of, of knowing and being in the presence of Jesus. And Dante put Saladin in that area. That's about as good as he could possibly make it for a Muslim, for an infidel. And in that limbo, he was rubbing shoulders, if you like, with Homer and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, who also who, who lived and died before the time of Jesus Christ. And yet, and so Dante was saying, well, it wasn't their fault. They, these were good men. They, they would have been Christians if they'd had the opportunity. So Dante's treatment of, of Saladin was quite remarkable in that respect as well. It's worth remembering Dante put Muhammad, the prophet, in the, in the eighth ring. That's the worst but one. <laughs> right? So Saladin, who would be one of Muhammad's followers, is out in the suburbs. Muhammad himself, according to Dante, is nearly in the hottest hell uh, for, for leading so many people away from Christ. So you can see it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre what's happening with Saladin. So against against the horror that was that was really played out in the Crusades, little moments were singled out to become the explanation for why Saladin was to be regarded as this special individual. For example, during the Battle of Jaffa in 1192, Richard was on horseback, you'd expect king in the battle. His horse was shot out from under him by a crossbow or an arrow or whatever. And Saladin either saw this or word reached him and because it was a fellow monarch, again, he couldn't bear, couldn't countenance the idea of Richard having to walk about on the battlefield. So he sent him not one but two of his own horses to replace the mount that had been shot out from under him. I suppose the high point of the, of the mythologising is that it was even latterly believed in the West, obviously, that Saladin had been a secret crusader, that really, underneath it all, he was a soldier of the cross, um, and that he had taken, he had received baptism on his deathbed in 1193. So that's how far it went. So you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why was the West contemplating and dealing with the foe in that way? And the answer seems to be that it was, in part, the West, Christianity, Christendom, coming to terms with the rise of Islam, trying to make the rise of Islam fit into God's greater plan. Christians had to try and work out why God had allowed to happen what he had allowed to happen. Why had the Christians been victorious in the First Crusade in 1099 and then lost the next three? I mean, after the Third Crusade, there was a fourth, and that was another horrific disaster that ended in the sacking of the city of Constantinople. So Christians were trying to work out what that must mean. And so an idea evolved, you might say, that Saladin was God's instrument, our Christian God's instrument, and that God had created him and put him as a piece on the board to punish Christians for falling short of the Christian ideal. So Saladin was there to show the Christians the error of their ways. That they embarked on these expeditions to reclaim the Holy Land, but invariably they fell to butchery and, and horrible behaviour on every occasion. And Saladin was conjured into being by God to show them what a better man looked like in the form of the enemy. 
And so what you end up with, what you end up with, I suppose, is that around the truth of Saladin, whoever he really was and however he really behaved, around the truth of him was spun a pearl. And you know how a pearl forms, a bit of grit or something uncomfortable that the oyster has to deal with. And to tolerate it, to make it something that it can live with, that piece of grit, it covers it in nacre to make it into a beautiful pearl. And something of the order of that happened with Saladin. A great gathering at the source of the mighty river Onon. Powerful tribal leaders, warriors and nobles all bow down and subjugate themselves before their new leader, Genghis Khan. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it and get them listening. Maybe write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.